0: Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Many of you will remember our previous conversation with writer and gardener Margaret Wrinkle about one of her previous titles – late migrations. Her opinion pieces in the New York Times document the nature of Our Humanity Weekly. I am so pleased to welcome Margaret back this week to share more with us about her newest title, which is aptly described as a literary and nature-based devotional from one of our favorite backyard nature devotees. Her book is The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year. Margaret, I am so pleased to welcome you back to Cultivating Place, and I want to just say that I have been as nourished and lifted by your newest book, The Comfort of Crows, as I am by your weekly pieces in the New York Times. Welcome back.
1: It's a pleasure to be back, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. So I've introduced you in this very basic
0: way. Can you distill down for us Who you are in relationship to plants, the the importance of plants or the role they play in your life, philosophically as well as pragmatically, at this point in your life, Margaret?
1: I will be honest, Jennifer, I didn't think a whole lot about plants as plants growing up. My mother was a passionate gardener, and she passed that passion along to my brother, Billy, but my sister and I just never really got the bug to. And and what changed for me was an environmental biology class when I was a senior at in college at Auburn University in Alabama, and I started to understand plants in a different way, not as, uh, not as backdrops um, as gardens so often are, and not as, um. Pretty things to be admired, but the foundation of an ecosystem um, and a crucial foundation. So, I I think that that was really the beginning of my love for uh, for native plants and for the the way they create a home for everything, including me.
0: Yeah. Okay, I like that. And take us back just a little bit briefly and give us some of the highlights, which you've already started on, as to the people and places and plants that grew you into a human for whom this particular voice and advocacy and perspective would be your life calling in this stage of your life, Margaret.
1: Oh, that is such an interesting question because it's so hard for me to go back to origins. I mean, I think that it's one of the er very earliest memories I have is of my grandfather's farm. My grandmother was a school teacher. She didn't um, participate much in the farming, but that was our home place. And so growing things was literally a a way of surviving and I'm sure it made some kind of foundational influence on me to to know that I I came up from farmers going back for I don't know how long and 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 but I think probably more even than that was just the nature of growing up in the 60s in in lower Alabama the way parents were far less um Vigilant about supervising mm. children. <laughs> and uh, that's a kind way of putting it. I like to say that that my brother and I were feral children mm-hmm. because we were so close in age and we were essentially allowed to go anywhere we wanted to go as long as we stayed together. So where we wanted to go was the woods. Where we wanted to go was the fields and the blackberry brambles. And so that is that became the place The setting in which I felt most myself, because it takes me right back to being this feral child, Mm -hmm. set free to explore my own interests and curiosities, and they always started in the natural world. So
0: let's go to the fact of The Comfort of Crows. When was the idea for the book planted in you? and? Share a little bit more about that germination story, Margaret.
1: Well, it, it really started with late migrations. I, I um I have a weekly responsibility to the New York Times. So it wasn't uh, really possible for me to take several weeks off to go on book tour. So the way we worked around that was that I would go out to a bookstore or auditorium or other venue just on the weekends or early in the week. And then I come back and write an essay for the times and then I'd go back out. And that went on for quite a while. And so by the time, by the last few book tour events that I did, people often had already read the book. The book had been out for two or three months by the very end of those public events. Mm -hmm. And they started saying to me, I started to read this book the way I read all books and then I found myself slowing down and slowing down and I started uh saving it on my bedside table to just read <laughs> one essay a night or one or two small pieces a night and um and really think about them and think about those same questions in relation to my own life to to my own rural grandparents or to my own garden or to my own family mm-hmm. and And it dawned on me that that's kind of the ideal way, really, to read a book of essays. It's probably the ideal way to read a book of poems, maybe a book of short stories as well. Mm -hmm. Anything that where everything is, it's nice to have a little buffer of time around each piece to contemplate it. And so when I started thinking about doing a companion volume to Late Migrations, that's the way I imagined I, am, I imagined it. Um, I mean, one reader actually said to me, I think of it as my nature devotional. It's like I have a, a a Christian devotional that I read in the morning and I have your book that I read at night. That's what that's what really gave me the ideas of, of, of structuring the comfort of crows. But I do think of it as kind of a, a flip side to late migrations. That was primarily a family story with echoes from the natural world to link cycles in the human life with cycles in the natural world. Whereas The Comfort of Crows works the other way. It's really more about the cycles of nature and the through line are the family stories that pop up here and there throughout. And
0: for everybody who has read *Late Migrations*, this will very much feel like uh, season two. Uh, you you meet some of the same characters. You hear a little bit more about them, which is wonderful. But as you say, you have done this kind of mirror image uh, with this time the the natural world being the primary lens uh, that offers. Insights and reflections on the human world instead of the reverse. Uh, but both work so beautifully. And this one, The Comfort of Crows, is a similar structure in that there are, uh, it, it, Well, why don't I have you describe the structure of where you start and how you separate these individual standalone pieces that string together into a a whole year, Margaret?
1: Well, I started, I knew I would start with one of the seasonal starting points, and honestly, just it, whether it was the first day of winter or the first day of spring or the first day of summer or the first day of fall really depended on my publisher when when they wanted to bring the book out. But I knew I wanted to start it with a season and not with a month because I wanted the season, even though seasons, uh, the seasonal signposts vary from location to location, even within this country, much less across the globe it's still we still all acknowledge that the first day of spring is March 20th or 21st depending on how it falls that year and it's nice to begin with something that's Universal but the idea was that there would be one essay for each week of the year and I did have the feeling one one thing I I did touch on climate change and biodiversity loss in late migrations but that wasn't my central concern but but standing witness, within this cataclysmic set of changes that our planet is undergoing was one of the things most driving me when I was writing the comfort of crows i wanted to be i wanted to be more transparent about the grief and more transparent about the hope and what it takes to engender hope in this world so that, that that's one big difference Um, But the structure is just week by week. But there are sprinkled throughout these little things that I call praise songs. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I was concerned about, just from a writerly standpoint, not really from an environmentalist standpoint or from a family member standpoint, but just in terms of structure, I didn't want them all to sound the same. I, I just was really worried. Sometimes nature books, I mean... Not to put too fine a point on it, but sometimes they're boring. <laughs> you know, they they just have a little too much of the same, the same mm-hmm. tone of wonder or the same and and that's a wonderful thing. It's wonderful to be full of awe and to or to be full of despair in the face of these terrifying changes. But a one note book is hard to sustain, and it's not and it's really unappealing, I think, from a reader's standpoint. So I wanted to very. The 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 kinds of essays, some of them are more informative, some of them are more um, narrative, some of them are more meditative, I wanted a a variety. But then I also wanted some that were just love songs, basically, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they were just little things that I absolutely love in kind of heightened language, almost like the language of a poem or the language of a song. And I call them praise songs. And they're sprinkled throughout randomly, but they're seasonally appropriate. So there's all different things from, you know, the kind of things really anybody would love to the kind of things that maybe I'm the only one who loves. But I I just wanted it to be not so dark. It's hard not to think about the natural world without thinking about the convulsions it's undergoing. But even even so, there is so much beauty and there's so much joy in that beauty. And I'm convinced that that is the route towards saving it. We save what we love. We are motivated to save what we fall in love with. So I think part of that is just sharing my own love and hoping it's infectious.
0: This is Cultivating Place, I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking this week with writer, gardener, and heartfelt observer, Margaret Wrinkle, joining us to share more about her newest book, The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year. We'll be back for more with Margaret, stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cato Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. I can't imagine more perfect episodes than last week's with Ollie Costello and this week's with Margaret Rankle. To honor the heart and soul of the Caddo Shaw Foundation's mission. Okay, Los Angeles friends, I am headed your way. Please come out and celebrate and say hello. On November 4th, I'll be leading a panel of seriously inspiring seed people for a feast day in seeds and words, if you will, at Terramoto's plant material location in Silver Lake. The What We Sow Seed People event will take place from 3 to 6 p.m. and is sort of a warm-up event for the evening's benefit concert in support of the work of No Canyon Hills. As David Godshaw noted, it will be a double header of badass eco-warriors in our world. The Seed People panel will include Terramoto, Chris Sarabia, the Conservation Director for the Palos Verdes Peninsula Land Conservancy, El Puente and Seed LA, Evan Meyer and Genevieve Arnold of the Theodore Payne Foundation, and Seed Artists, Sophia Lassin and Hennessy Christoffel of Studio Tuto. While Naomi Frega and Cheryl Berker of the California Botanic Gardens Seed Conservation Work are not able to join us, I will hope to bring word of their latest seeded achievements and aspirations. This event is free and open to the public. I'll be signing and selling books and mostly just reveling in the end of the season, which of course marks the very fertile moment of the next season's Times Many. Hoping you can make it. We're back now to our conversation with contributing New York Times opinion writer Margaret Rinkel, sharing more with us about her newest book, The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year. As we come back, Margaret explores her practice of holding the dialectic between despair and hope and assuring us that hope is not a fool's errand.
1: I think that um it's easy for people to make the mistake of believing that hope is a fool's errand and that there's a there's a certain in candide there's a character named pangloss the the who is constantly saying this is the best of all possible worlds <laughs> and, and and it it's a hilarious send up because he says it in connection with just really horrific things and i and i want to be clear that i'm not talking about that kind of mindless or blind thoughtless optimism i'm talking about with hope i'm talking about an exercise a kind of uh, muscle memory that you develop when you know that you don't really have any choice like if you succumb to despair me all all despair is in this world is a recipe for inaction. It's a recipe for defeat. Despair never motivated anybody to do anything. But hope, now hope is a whole different thing. And if you look, if you make a practice of looking for reasons to believe that change is possible, that change is happening, that hope is not unfounded, you will discover those things. They're out there. They're everywhere. And that's what I work hard on is trying to seek out and highlight the reasons to continue to hope. And in that state of hope to make changes, all kinds of changes that will lead to a better world for us and for our wild neighbors.
0: There are so many through lines in the book, uh, the one of family, the one of you personally aging uh, and moving into a new chapter of your life, of losing people in your life, and of taking on these new understandings and therefore mandates for you as to how to be the best human you can be, starting With what you observe and learn from in your own backyard with plants and animals and sometimes humans as well. I think it might be fun. Maybe fun is too weird a word. (laughs) It might be (laughs) useful uh, to listeners if we actually dive into one week in each season um, and maybe a couple of the praise songs to give them an idea of what we're talking about in a more tangible way. Uh, we start off with winter, we start off with the sleeping season, and then we go into the growing season, the maturation season, and then the going back to sleep season, as it were. Um, If I were to ask you in the season of winter, those first 13 weeks, uh, if there was one chapter or, or entry that might come to mind in holding this idea of Grief, sometimes disgust, sometimes just vivid anger up against the hard work of hope and change.
1: Well, I should confess that I didn't actually write these all in one year. Uh, the essays that concern exclusively the natural world or the parts of essays that concern it, those I might have written at various times during the course of three or four years. Mm -hmm. The human elements follow a single year, not even a calendar year, but during a roughly 12-month period Mm -hmm. towards the end of the pandemic when my father-in-law began to die and my adult children came home and then prepared to leave again. So writing, I wasn't writing the natural world essays in real time, not really. Like there might have been, I had several essays to choose from about pollinators, for instance, or several Mm -hmm. about seeds, saving seeds, or several about the nesting habits of the birds in my yard. And then I had to choose which one. And sometimes I cut and paste and combine some things. So, But this piece, Wild Joy, it really was a, a response to an extraordinarily early spring. And so... It's really hard to know what to do with a really early spring because we're so grateful for spring when it comes after, if not the cold of winter, at least the silence because birds don't sing really in the wintertime. Bird song has a purpose and its purpose is mainly territorial defense and communication with mates. (laughs) So we don't hear a lot of birds and birds are it birds, it singing takes a lot of energy for birds. And in the winter, they need that energy to stay warm, um, especially because food sources are far less plentiful. There are no insects in winter, for example, for a bird to eat. So it's easy to feel the stirrings of joy in the presence of spring. And it's hard not to feel guilty about that yeah. <laughs> when you know that spring shouldn't be here yet. It's, it's not due for a while, but the birds are out there singing their heads off, and the flowers are, are bolting up out of the ground, the perennials, and and the insects are stirring for the first time in some, time, some while. And, and finally, in in this essay, I just say, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to feel joyful. I think that joy is a, an emotion we don't have access to very much anymore, and it would be kind of criminal to try to suppress it when it stirs. Yeah.
0: And there is this question that you pose in this particular entry, which is a recurring idea across the book, is in the face of these things that are terrible and horrible and which we are complicit in and contributing to with so much of what we do in our modern lives, whether it's getting in a car or getting on an airplane or planting a plant that turns out to be invasive, there is this question of, and you say it beautifully, if you tell me I don't deserve this joy, you're telling me nothing I don't already know. From the very first hominid to rise up on bare feet and stumble across a field of blooming grass, we have been burning this world down." And then towards the end, you say, the world is burning and there is no time to put down the water buckets, but just for an hour, put down the water buckets anyway. Take your cue from the bluebirds who have no faith in the future. And this was a a complicated permission slip, but I, I think in the face of The anxiety that we are all carrying prior to the pandemic, but exacerbated by the pandemic. It's essential to all of us, I find. And clearly you believe this.
1: Well, I do. I think that we won't have the energy or the courage to keep up the fight if we can't take a moment to luxuriate in the beauty and the balance and the wholeness of what we're fighting for it's just it's just in our nature we we will fight to the death to save something we love but we 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 need to have some time to settle into the love too
0: and i do love the way you say that we are creatures built for joy and uh the world is reminding us that this is what the world does best new life rebirth And I think for me, you know, the fact, you know, whether you call yourself a gardener or not, uh, your relationship with your backyard space, and of course, the whole book does not take place just in your backyard, but takes place on neighboring uh, lots, in the wood next door, in your childhood backyards, in a park that you take solace in and you walk in after you... Take up volunteering at school to help with after school programs. The point being that backyard is a sort of holding concept for these spaces that are part of your everyday life and are your access point to all of these things, to everything we're losing, to life, to death, but also to that full cycle of sometimes losing. And then being able to regenerate. And that idea of regeneration, which you say in another entry, is very hard and sometimes painful. But still, we have so many individual um, evidences of this regeneration being possible.
1: I'm glad you made that distinction about what I mean by backyard. It is a holding... Place it is. I mean it to be inclusive of all all forms of nearby nature. Mm-hmm. I'm using backyard as a as a um almost like a symbol of the kind of nature we all encounter, as opposed to the kind of nature that you can only get to by driving in your car to and parking and hiking in. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about wilderness, um, but I'm not necessarily talking about a literal backyard either. I want because it's really important to me. I don't want people to think that you have to be, you have to live in enough of a state of privilege to have land of your own that you have control over. But because these things are available, these observations, almost all of them are available in city parks. They're available on park benches in the actual city without a park anywhere nearby. They're available on on apartment balconies. This kind of nearby nature is accessible to all of us, whatever our immediate circumstances. I the, you know, I, I drive an electric vehicle, so I have to rent a car if I'm going to travel for, to give a talk. And the car rental place I go to is next to a really, it's not even, I wouldn't even call it a, a vacant lot. It's an overgrown sort of, parking lot that belongs to some other some business that doesn't exist anymore but there are so much uh there are so many native plants around the margins and coming up right through the cracks in the pavement of that extremely urban abandoned parking lot that you would not even believe the butterflies that will be there in august and september and it's just right there if you're paying attention so the backyard is a kind of holding term for nearby nature in in all of its forms from, you know, from a protected pocket of woods that the city is protecting from development and allowing citizens to walk through, you know, right up to the pot on the balcony that you put. I I heard from one reader last year who had planted milkweed in her pot on a ninth floor balcony in Atlanta Mm. and sent me a picture of a monarch sitting yeah. on that pot of milkweed a monarch yeah. butterfly in in migration mode and so uh, that's it that is important and thank you for making that distinction
0: this is cultivating place i'm jennifer jewell we're speaking this week with contributing New York Times opinion writer, Margaret Rinkle. She's joining us once again to share more about her newest book, The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year. For anyone who reads Margaret in the New York Times or who read one of her earlier books, Late Migrations, this newest book will be a very comfortable and familiar yet energizing return of Margaret's voice and teaching stories. We'll be back for more with Margaret. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. (laughs) Okay, so my takeaway for this week, I find in Margaret's dialectic between grief and hope. That hope is definitely not a fool's errand, but it is also not a sedentary noun. It is a verb, an active verb, which can take many forms, but in this case, it is embodied and made manifest through listening, looking, appreciating, supporting, tending, and sharing forward, which we might call sowing A man at a reading this past week asked me to sign his copy of What We Sow with this old adage. Sow kindness, harvest love. I fully enjoyed the rich love song that Margaret Wrinkle both harvested from her backyard year and has now sown forward into ours. I think you might enjoy it too. We're back now to our conversation with writer and backyard tender, Margaret Wrinkle, sharing with us more about the purpose and passion behind her newest title, The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year. As we come back, Margaret and I explore the nature of beauty and fashion. Tell the story of the mondo grass along the border to the front of your house that Haywood generally mows down.
1: Uh, well, we call it monkey grass here. But right, it's, right. <laughs> my mother planted it. If I were a, a true purist in the native plant world, I would have dug that stuff up years ago. But my mother planted it, and I miss my mother. And I love that little path of jaunty striped monkey grass. Um, but but Haywood didn't mow it down one year, and so it 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 bore fruit and. One winter, when there was nothing else for the birds to eat, the robins were eating berry after berry after berry. Now, that is how an invasive plant becomes invasive, is that, I mean, they either put out, I mean, that's the thing about monkey grass. It it propagates itself by doubling and doubling and doubling, just like all perennials or most. But it also, you know, it's carried in the bellies of birds. And so the seed at the heart of that little blue fruit will, take root wherever the bird poops and so it's not a great thing in any way but it is it it, you know in a in a time of deep need for for wildlife sometimes it's all there is one of the reasons that um that it is so it has become invasive I believe is because we have planted so many Uh, non-native plants that are beautiful. A Yoshino cherry tree is beautiful. And it is ideally suited to the tropical sort of uh, environment of the American South. And that's true for so many other things, for crepe myrtles, for um, all the flowering plums and cherries. You know, we have whole neighborhoods that are absolutely nothing but boxwoods chinese yews and crepe myrtle there's nothing in those landscapes that will feed a native bird or a native butterfly or a native bee they don't they they didn't evolve to recognize those plants as food sources so not only are they sterile effectively in terms of the natural world they they are displacing the plants that would be feeding our native wildlife. So that's the, kind of the crucial sort of double whammy of modern, of contemporary landscaping, um, what's in fashion, it's just what's in fashion. So, you know, people could plant uh, instead of let's say a Yoshino cherry tree, they could plant a serviceberry tree, which is native to almost every state in the nation. And has beautiful airy white flowers that bloom in spring and that feed the native pollinators and that produce fruit that the native wildlife can eat. But people don't even know about those trees. They're so out of fashion and they have been out of fashion for so very long that the nurseries don't carry them. You have to go to special trouble to find them. The, the If you hire somebody to help you with your landscaping, they don't know anything about it. And it's much easier for a builder in a neighborhood like mine of old, small, uh, shabby houses to come in, buy the old shabby house and tear it down, scrape it lot end to end, edge to edge, and just plant whatever is available in the nursery that supplies their plants. And, and so we don't even have the scruffy marginal plants anymore that used to grow up in the part of the yard that never got mowed you know the little the little bits of goldenrod and the little bits of ironweed and the little bits of butterfly weed that were very common in even cultivated areas like suburbia until basically roundup came along and made it possible to make your backyard look like your living room
0: You get to this. So we started in a winter story and we have segued very beautifully to a spring story you offer up uh, entitled Wild Flowers at My Feet and Songbirds in My Trees. And you talk about this very idea of how fashion has altered our human landscapes to such an, an extent that it is apocalyptic. And you...
1: Talk about the loneliness of that. It's a feeling I work hard to shake because it would be so easy for me to be angry about it, to be be so frustrated with my neighbors and my friends and my family who think nothing of just going to Home Depot or Lowe's and just buying another butterfly bush or and thinking that they're helping and they're not, they're not helping, they're hurting because mm-hmm. they've bought something that's invasive, or they've you can't blame people for these choices. They're busy, they're trying to get the lunch boxes packed, they're trying to get the report at work filed, they're trying to get the kids, you know, somewhere if they have strep throat and can't go to school. It's, it's hard. It's hard to keep everything in mind that that would make it possible to go, hmm, I wonder if these really are the plants I want in the pots next to my front door. I wonder if these. this is really a good tree to plant. Nobody has time for that. It's hard. Um, and I understand that. It, we really need these corporations. We really need these um, big box stores to do a better job of like, nobody needs to be selling English ivy in the United States of America ever again. You know, nobody needs to be selling monkey grass. Nobody needs to be selling butterfly bushes. And yet, that is what is on offer. You know, that is what you go. You go to the big box store, and that's what's there. And even the the specialty nurseries where you pay more money, they're still going to have they're going to have hybrid versions of native plants that may or may not feed native insects. So sometimes when a when a flower is hybridized um, or cultivated, a new a new cultivar comes out. What has happened to it in that process makes it inaccessible to bee mouths, for yeah. example. So you have to be um, you you have to have some time to study this, and very few people have time. I guess one thing I hope will happen if people read The Comfort of Crows is that they'll realize that they've been lied to for a long time by mm. corporate America mm. and will demand, will go and say, why aren't you why aren't you selling sunflowers? Why aren't you selling right? these things that will actually help? And I think you know, waking up to that responsibility, can happen in a blink it's sometimes it's just a matter of going oh wow i didn't even know that
0: right you know and and in that exact essay you end um the wildflowers at my feet songbirds in my trees entry in the spring section you end with this idea of there's only so much a person can do and that isn't very much but it's still something And I think one of the important things to point out to listeners today, to to your and my conversation, is in all likelihood, we are speaking to the converted. We are speaking to the educated. But the reminder here is not to say, oh, I already know all of this. The reminder here is to say, this is exactly why we keep talking about it, why we keep sharing, why we keep showing up at our independent nurseries and our big box stores and saying, I really want to see that all of your plants are neonicotinoid free. I really want to see you carry a selection or a series of native plants for our exact environment. Because the more of us that do that, the more we demonstrate the economics are viable. We are a large cohort of people. And if those of us who have the time or the space or the opportunity to know these things more clearly. And the more we demand them in these systems that exist, the more we stand a chance of moving the needle, even a little bit, because even a little bit has the potential to become a big bit that is statistically meaningful.
1: I think that's so true. And I and I think it's also very self-reinforcing. So when somebody comes along who's never thought about this and then puts in a milkweed plant on a, on a high rise balcony and a monarch appears, right? right. All, of, all of a sudden they go, Oh, you know, and it's very, it's beautiful. It's self-reinforcing that that's the thing that gives me the most hope of all is that I have this teeny, teeny little lot relative to what you think of as suburbia. I don't live in a outer ring suburbia is where the yards are an acre or two. I have a little inner inner ring suburban yard and it's just staggering how quickly the rebound will happen visibly before my eyes if I try something new. What if we don't mow this part? Just don't mow it and see what happens and then all of a sudden we have this huge array of wildflowers that have shown up on the wind or on the coats of animals or in the bellies of birds and then we have pollinators even more in the own mode parts than in the garden I've planted for pollinators so it's it's very self-reinforcing this whole ethos Um, it's just finding a way in is all it takes I think and of course, we do have to do other things. We have to pressure the, our, the businesses, just as you said, to provide the things that we want to spend our money on, because that's what they want. They want to give us a reason to spend our money with them. Right. And But we also want to, you know, we want to let our elected officials know mm-hmm. that this is not a political issue. This is something we all are concerned about. Nobody wants to live in a world without birds or lightning bugs. Nobody wants to live in a world without butterflies. Nobody, whatever the political side of the aisle you're on. And if we can get our elected officials to realize that this is not a political issue, this is a human issue. And if we give our money to the nonprofits, the conservation nonprofits who can parry small contributions into big action, all these things matter. All these things can make a difference and move the needle and do it instantly.
0: Yes. And you know. The fact is that both you and I who have been at this work for quite a long time, we are still learning. We are still having epiphanies where we say, oh, wait, I didn't, I shouldn't do that. I I know that now. Like, don't cut everything back because the little bees are sleeping in those stems. Or just this morning, Margaret, I was sweeping around a large potted uh, kumquat tree in my front courtyard. And all of a sudden I went, wait. Don't sweep all of that. The little toadlets that I saw earlier this week are probably able to like nestle in there and shelter for the day. So I like made my little pile of leaves and, <laughs> and debris back around the pot. Um, and you know, depending on where you are and who you are and what your circumstances are, like you can't you can't do everything, but you can do these, these little things.
1: And can I just say one thing in response to the, your toadlets? And I think this is an important uh point. Is that you saved the toadlets, but you also saved yourself the trouble of sweeping. Right. And that is the thing that we, that is just our ace in the hole, those of us who care so much about this, because it saves money and it saves time to do the right thing. It's, I mean, that's, that's the, the hilarious thing if you're feeling sort of, um, darkly humorous is that you know the things that are wrong are what take time and money and so you actually end up being in way better shape by becoming attuned to these issues
0: yes and i i will add the caveat because i have to uh that being in the west uh, sometimes you have to tidy up in ways that you know you don't want to for habitat, but for fire safety. sure, We we have a different mandate at this exact time. And, and I get that, but there are ways, even still, there are ways to leave your isolated piles for protection and habitat. And so you just have to think creatively uh, with the circumstances you have, whether you are in flood territory, fire territory, you know, tornado territory, there's there's always something somewhere. Um, and there are still ways to do the right thing and stay within uh, the safety mandates of your exact environment. That's a good point. Speaking of toadlets and um, speaking of summer, uh, we are speaking in summer. This will air later in the fall when the book is publishing. Take us to your stock tank. Tell us about this <laughs> this experience that, that you and you shared this with one of your family members. Share that story, Margaret, because it's one of my favorites in the book.
1: Well, I just, my youngest son, uh, he was an environmental science major in college. So he's, he's very attuned to these issues. And he um, did a, a work study six month um, period while he was in college with an urban shepherd whose flock of sheep. Um, the city hires to uh, control invasive vegetation in public spaces so he's really and and so what he gives me for mother's day and for my birthday my birthday is in the fall mother's day in the spring is that he gives me a day of yard work with me and so what we did with my mother's day yard work that year was start a a little pond a little a little habitat in a in a giant bucket mint to water livestock like uh, like people would put them out in their pasture for their horses or their goats or whatever sheep and so we just went to tractor supply and bought a 40 gallon uh, stock tank and then we uh we filled it with native aquatic plants and we surrounded it with native uh marginal plants like uh inland sea oats and um uh, flag iris and a few other things like that Um, really with the idea that I can hear tree frogs in the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. but I don't hear tree frogs in our yard. Mm -hmm. And so during the pandemic, uh, you know, of course frogs travel on rainy nights and frogs and toads. And um, I, there were a couple of people in the neighborhood who had, uh, swimming pools one of the houses that had a swimming pool burned down during the pandemic and it was in litigation for a long time and then um, and then another the neighbors were retired and they spend their winters in Florida and they couldn't get back because of the lockdowns and their pool and the house <laughs> and the house that burned down and it that pool filled up with frogs just You could hear them all over the neighborhood, and Mm -hmm. so I thought if I had this stock tank in my backyard, maybe I would attract some at least tree frogs to come and lay their eggs in. They like uh, frogs like to lay their eggs in uh, shallow, small bodies of water that don't have fish in them, because the fish will eat the eggs and eat the tadpoles. So that's what they're looking for is something very like what I have, and and so that's what we put together.
0: And it's um, it's a beautiful intersection of several of the, um, the threads in the book that come together to form the whole, you as a human mother, partner, daughter-in-law, daughter, um, and letting go of your sons into the world, and you trying to make these sanctuary spaces as you learn more every week that we go through the book with you. And I would imagine... Like the rest of us, every week of our lives, again, if we're paying attention, I want to move to a praise song, and I would love for you to share the praise song for fingers that do not form a fist. Can you tell us this story, Margaret?
1: It's uh, I don't I'm not great with insects. I'll admit I I, I do have a a good app and a lot of field guides. But some creature, I don't know what it was, was in one day was in my kitchen sink. And I just, I will admit that there was a thought there for a moment that the pot with the pasta water soaking overnight would be a very convenient way to just empty the pot, sweep the little creature down the drain and not have to worry about about it. but I I what would what would be the point? every insect matters at this point. We're we're in the middle of an insect apocalypse. we at this rate, if things keep going, we will have no insects left in a hundred years. So I just cupped my hand around the the um, the little creature and took it outside. And there's a way you can hold your fingers. If you hold your fingers closed up against the heel of your of your thumb and you leave the thumb on the outside, rather than crossing it across the fingers to make a fist, if you leave it on the outside, there's the pressure is even enough that you won't destroy what you're holding. But if you move your fingers over just a little bit to make room for your thumb to cross, Then you have the force that would kill whatever's in your hand. So that's where I came up with that one. Just thinking about the difference between the thumb held to the side of your closed fingers and the thumb that forms a fist. And how very
0: nuanced that difference is, but how exponentially different in effect and... The difference between a fist smashing something and, as you say, uh, making your hand a sanctuary, a safe passage to the world. Is that very change you are asking of readers and listeners to, to keep in mind in every choice they make or observation they sit with? That's what I hope. That's what I hope too, Margaret. There's so much in the book,, uh, and it's beautiful. i I would be absolutely remiss if I did not have you tell us a little bit once again about your brother Billy and his gorgeous, layered, colorful, and very storied artwork that accompanies your book
1: well, it's there's one for every primary essay, not for every praise song, but for every week of the year and all i said to billy billy did the artwork for late migrations too and what i what i said to him those worked a little differently they were more transparently illustrative of the essay but i i I, what billy does as an artist in his studio practice is often he he does choose to begin in a text he's working on a series of artworks now large works that are um based in the Book of Hours. He had he did an entire show one year that was based in um the novel, the the journals of Henry David Thoreau. So I just told him here, here's here's the text. You respond to it as though I weren't your sister. <laughs> you know, I didn't I wanted I didn't want it to be I didn't want the artwork to be illustration. I think, you know, most of the time when we think about Uh, text and image pairings one is subservient to the other Mm. so the words are the caption to the image or the image is the illustration of the words and i i wanted this to be more of a conversation this was billy's art in conversation with mine and so he did have questions quite a few questions as it turns out about various uh like is this the is this cuz he's a collage artist he has to work with um found materials is is this the kind of butterfly you described is this the kind of native bird and and so we were we, there was some back and forth with that but i didn't beyond the initial instructions which is that i really wanted the artwork to be lush and verdant and wild and tangled and messy and all of that i didn't want it to look too prescribed or conscribed and so after that he was just on his own and he and he set it up uh, uh, he often worked uh, he would put um, an entire season out and work on all of them at once and so that he could create a kind of um, so there was no no in the same way that I was trying hard not to make all of the essays sound alike, he was trying to make the images different one from Mm -hmm. another Mm -hmm. by putting them side by side and seeing the progression that they make through the season.
0: Yeah. Well, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. And, and very evocative of the same um, atmosphere you create with your, your words, Uh, the, the human um, hobbles, uh, that we, we endure and have created for ourselves and the, but also some of the human transcendence as well as so many beautiful nature images. So I I know people will really respond to and enjoy this artwork, uh, as you read your little vitamin of (laughs) Margaret Brinkle, each, each one at a time, uh, to savor throughout a season, perhaps. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question before hopefully we have some time for me to invite you to read a section from the book. But the title of the book, The Comfort of Crows, can you can you share a little bit about the importance of crows in your life and symbolically, uh, especially the ways in which you invite us to rethink how we approach our our connotations of crows, Margaret?
1: I love crows. I especially love blue jays. I think I paid more attention to, I think blue jay was one of the first words I ever spoke. It's definitely the first bird I knew to recognize. My parents would repeat that story to me over and over again, how it it was a blue jay. But um, those birds, along with magpies and ravens in this country, belong to the group of birds known as corvids. And they are extremely smart birds they have a brain to body ratio that is as uh, almost as close to ours as the great apes they are um, supremely intelligent but more than that they're problem-solving birds and they're birds who are famous for their sense of play even as adults Many animals will play as, as young animals, but very few adult animals play. Human beings are one of them. So are crows. And they have a very strong family feeling. So in the winter, when other birds are silent, conserving their energy, crows are still talking to one another. They're staying together in families through winter. The young from one year will help to raise the young, their parents raise the young from t- in the next year and I don't know there's something about that connection that we have so much in common with them and this is a book I think of it as a book about kinship I think of it as a book about seeing how connected we all are that we are also part of this natural world that we belong in this backyard too. And so I like the idea of the crow. It gives me comfort to think of this human analog that I have in the avian world with these these crow families.
0: Well, and that is a perfect segue into inviting you to perhaps read a bit from your very opening chapter, I guess you would call it, entitled Wherever You Are, Stop What You're Doing. And in this, you invite us to stop and look. You invite us to stop and ponder. And I would love to invite you to start your reading at Stop and Listen.
1: Stop and listen to the ragged-edged beech leaves, pale specters of the winter forest. They are chattering ghosts, Clattering amid the bare branches of the other hardwoods, one light pours through their evanescence and burnishes them to gleaming. Deep in the gray sleeping forest, whole beech trees flare up into whispering creatures made of trembling gold. Stop and consider the deep hollows of the persimmons bark The way the tree has carved its own skin into neat rectangles of sturdy protection. See how the lacy lichens have found purchase in the channels, sharing space in the hollows. Tree and lichen belong to one another. Neither is causing the other any harm. Stop and peer at the hummingbird nest, smaller than your thumb, in the crook of the farthest reach of an oak branch. Remember the whirr of hummingbird wings. Remember the green flash of hummingbird light. Stop and notice how closely the human teenagers resemble the chattering, whistling, clicking, preening starlings. Stop and contemplate the hollow-boned ducks floating on the water like leaves like deadwood. Turtles, too, drift in the sunny water. See the way the bones in the turtle's webbed foot resemble the bones in the duck's webbed foot. Hold open your hand. Trace the outline of your fingers. Stop and think for a time about kinship. Think for a long time about kinship. The world lies before you, a lavish garden. The world lies before you, a lavish garden. However hobbled by waste, however fouled by graft and tainted by deception, it will always take your breath away. We were never cast out of Eden. We merely turned from it and shut our eyes to return and be welcomed cleansed and redeemed we are only obliged to look
0: thank you very much for being a guest on the program today margaret wrinkle it has been a pleasure to speak with you again and to experience the gift of the comfort of crows
1: thank you so much jennifer thank you for reading with such a loving heart mm.
0: Margaret Wrinkle is the author of The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year, which will be published on October 24, 2023. Her earlier books include Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love, and Loss. She is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, where her essays documenting our humanity appear weekly. Join us again next week when we continue our artistic autumnal theme in conversation with Nina Vitito of Blue Ridge Botanic and the brand new Secrets of the Wildflowers podcast, an offshoot of her beloved Secrets of the Wildflowers video series on social media. That's next week right here. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises, and made possible in part by listeners just like you, through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at CultivatingPlace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Anhel Haracha, and weekly show transcripts by Doolis Transcription. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX. Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.